Let's pray that God would help us as we think about those passages. Lord, Heavenly Father, we do pray for your work in our hearts and minds that we will understand, appreciate, believe, trust and rely on uh, your word to us this morning. We pray that as we reflect on the death of your Son, it will become more significant to us than it already is. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had one of those, I never realised, moments? Perhaps you've taken something for granted for years and then you've come to realise the effort and sacrifice required for that thing, whatever it is, to take place. Maybe you, like me, you've enjoyed watching some of those incredible East African middle and long distance runners over the years at the Olympic Games and the Commonwealth Games and you watch them effortlessly gliding along, looking like they're not trying very hard and going on to win the races. And you might sort of think, hmm, doesn't look too hard. One morning I was in Africa uh, about 15 years back and I was near the foot of the Gong Hills which is west of Nairobi and I was out at about 5 or 5.30 or 6 in the morning and there was this massively long straight road and in, down there I think I saw some runners, this, some sort of training group running and they got closer and they sort of went whoosh right past. It looked like they were barely trying but they were moving at an incredibly fast pace and I thought, these guys do this day after day, week after week, year after year. It doesn't get that way by chance that they're that good and as good as they are. Perhaps that was a I never realised moment, I wonder. Or take your parents, for goodness sake. You've uh, probably you know, sort of appreciated your parents over the years. Hopefully you've appreciated them a, a lot. But if you ever find yourself in a situation where you yourself have children and you're sort of aware of the sacrifices you make for your children... Or if you don't have children, you're probably aware of the sacrifice some of the family members and friends make for their children. And then you have this I never realised moment when you suddenly it dawns on you, boy, I bet my parents made sacrifices for me as well, which I don't know about. I think probably you and about a thousand million other people have had that realisation dawn on them at some stage. Well, I'm hoping that this Good Friday, whoever you are, you might have something of a I never realised that moment with respect to the nature of Jesus' suffering on the cross, his suffering that provides everyone with the opportunity to be saved. Now, of course, it would be absolutely trite of me to say to you, well, we can't fully appreciate how Jesus suffered. Of course we can't. We will never get close to appreciating the extent to which Jesus suffered on our behalf. But what I am hoping this morning is that you will perhaps appreciate some aspects of Jesus' suffering in a new way, which you may not have, even if you've been coming to church for 50 years, you may not have thought of it this way before. Anyway, anyway, that's my hope. And what's the value of appreciating how Jesus suffered for us? Well, not because we, we're, we're sadists or anything like that, but it's because it helps us to appreciate even more God's love for us when we realise what he suffered for us. So... Good Friday. Good Fridays can be quiet and sober affairs because we dwell on Jesus' suffering, but they can also be celebratory affairs when we realise the victory which is achieved for us. This morning I'm ho hoping we can do a little bit of both. We're going to glance at uh, Mark 15 and then we're going to look in detail at Psalm 22 for reasons that will soon become apparent. Uh, on the sermon outline which you've received, you'll see that we're going to spend most of our time at point one, Jesus suffered, and then point two, for our salvation. So that's where we're going. Let's start with, firstly, point one, he suffered. And the launching point for our reflection this morning comes from Mark chapter 15, it's verse 34 
Let me remind you of what those verses says. Jesus is, of course, on the cross. It says, at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What extraordinary words they are. What do you think is being communicated by those words? Do you think perhaps it might indicate that Jesus is experiencing something of a loss of faith? Well, it's not that. The surrounding context indicates that. But Jesus wouldn't refer to his father as my God, my God, <laughs> my, my God, if he'd lost his faith. That's not that. Do you think it perhaps indicates that Jesus is somewhat surprised at the turn of events which have taken place? That Oh, my goodness, suddenly here I am on the cross. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Well, of course, it's not that either. If you've read through earlier in the book of Mark, in Mark chapters 8, chapter 9 and chapter 10, Jesus tells his followers, we're going to Jerusalem and there I'm going to be crucified. And that was a point made in our, you know, amusing video seen earlier as well. It is part of the plan that Jesus is there. Now, what many of you may or may not know is that when Jesus says, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? He's actually quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from this 22nd Psalm, which was read for us by, by uh, earlier. And um, he's quoting the first verse. Let me read Psalm 22, verse 1. It's written by King David. Uh, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Now, that's how the psalm starts. But if you read the whole of Psalm 22, as we just did, well, we see that it starts off expressing incredible anguish, but it concludes with great trust in God. Psalm 22 is... I'm feeling desolation, but ultimately, I trust in God. And quoting the first line of the psalm would have brought to mind for people the entire psalm. Now, if you've ever done the course Christianity Explained with me, there's a little illustration I often tell at one particular point, where I say that if you quote the first line of a song, it will often bring to mind the whole song and all sorts of things which you associate with that song. So if I sort of said, um, you know... Once a jolly swagman camped by a billabong, you think, oh, waltzing Matilda. You know, the Australian larrikin in the bush, in the outback, you know, looking after himself, taking advantage of things when they arise, not bowing to authority and, you know, deciding to be killed rather than captured. That's the Australian spirit. First line, you think of the whole song and you think of all the things associated with it. If you don't think of that, I'm sure you think of other things as well. So it is here. When Jesus quotes Psalm 22, verse 1... He's referring to the whole psalm. Why did Jesus quote Psalm 22, verse 1? Well, presumably because that psalm expresses how he felt at the time. Have you ever found yourself wondering about someone else, what on earth are they thinking? Have you ever thought that? Perhaps you've, with your spouse, or with your parents, or your kids, you thought, what on earth are they thinking? Uh, there's a, a, a story in our family which we like to tell. Once we are looking at my father-in-law and we thought, what on earth are you thinking at the moment? And someone actually asked him and he sort of said with great thought, yeah, I was thinking about if Arnold Schwarzenegger wrestled a female Neanderthal, he'd lose. <laughs> there we go. Never would have picked that one, would you? <laughs> well, whatever, what are, is someone thinking? 
Now, perhaps you thought, what was Jesus thinking on the cross? Now, we know some of the things he was thinking because he articulates them, it's the various things he says. But when he basically articulates Psalm 22, verse 1 from the cross, presumably it's because he feels that that psalm sums up how he feels at the time, it sums up what he was thinking. We get a window into Jesus' mind as he's on the cross. So let's look at the psalm, Psalm 22, in a bit more detail. It's an emotionally intense psalm, which I'm sure you picked up when David read it. And uh, in verses 1 to 18, the emotion is one of desolation. It starts off with, uh, my God, why have you forsaken me? That sets the tone and verse 2 continues in the same vein. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and I find no rest. And that's really only the beginning of it all. Now, I wonder what you're like at expressing emotions. Do you express your emotions? You're the strong, silent type? Uh, or you bottle them up? Or do you wear your heart on your sleeve and everyone knows exactly how you're feeling? Let's just engage in some entire national stereotypes for, for a few moments. The British! The British stereotypically bottle up their emotions, don't they? The Southern Europeans, stereotypically, they wear their hearts on their sleeve and express their emotions. What about... The Australians, what are we like? What do you think we're like? Well, I was thinking about this and I thought, I think we probably fall into the she'll be right, bottled up category. Slightly different to the English, stiff upper lip, bottled up category. But note this, the psalmist, uh, who was David, is quite comfortable expressing his emotions uh, very strongly. But note this, he expresses his emotions in Psalm 22 to God. He tells God how he feels. Now, to whom do we express our intense emotions, whether it be joy or anguish? Often, sometimes or whatever, it can be good to express them to other people. Sometimes it would probably be better not to do that. But it's always good to express our emotional state and how we feel to God, our joys and sorrows. Uh, David does that in the psalm and Jesus is doing that on the cross. So, it's uh, both David and Jesus are feeling great anguish and also there is a tension in the anguish they feel. Particularly at verses 1 to 9 and thereabouts, there seems to be this but that going on in the psalm. So, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But a little later in verse 3, he says, yet you, God, are enthroned as a holy one. You are the one Israel praises. Okay, a bit, bit of a contrast there. Verse 6, the psalmist says, I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised uh, by the people. Yet in verse 9, he then says, you made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. There seems to be this tension there. He's expressing how he feels, but something quite different that he knows to be true. His emotions are like this, but his head seems to be acknowledging this. Now, do you get that? Do you ever find yourself feeling one thing but your head says that you know something else is true? You know, maybe you know, if, you're a, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're suffering in some situation and it's horrible, but then your mind reminds you that God cares about you. You know that's true, but it seems to be out of sync with your emotions. That seems to be what's taking place here with the psalmist and I suspect, in one sense, that's how Jesus was feeling at the time as well. Now, why this intense 
tension-laden outpouring of emotion, well, the psalmist David must have been suffering at the time he wrote it. Look at some of the things he describes feeling in the following verses. He feels that he was mocked. He feels mocked, verse 7, taunted, verse 8, surrounded, verse 12, torn, verse 13, having his bones out of joint, verse 14, his mouth dry, verse 15, his hands and feet pierced, verse 16, uh, his bones on display, verse 17, and his clothes divided, verse 18. And it's a penny dropped with you, because David expresses that how he feels, but these are all the sorts of things which Jesus is experiencing on the cross, isn't it? In fact, so closely does David's expression here mirror what Jesus was experiencing and presumably feeling on the cross that one commentator, a guy by the name of Frost, said that it's not without reason that this psalm has been called the fifth gospel account of the crucifixion. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Psalm 22. I think that's an interesting point. Let's look at those verses again, very briefly. Verse 7 says, all who see me mock me, they hurl insults. And of course, Jesus in Mark 15 was mocked by the soldiers and he was mocked on the cross. Verse 8, the psalmist writes, he trusts in the Lord, they say, let the Lord rescue him. He's being taunted. And of course, Jesus was taunted on the cross. Passers-by say things like, you know, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. I think the religious leader said he saved others, but he can't save himself. You know, he is being taunted. Verse 12, the psalmist writes, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Now, Jesus, of course, wasn't surrounded by literal bulls, but he was surrounded by the governor's soldiers when they were mocking him. Matthew 27 tells us that. And I guess he was probably surrounded on the cross as well. Verse 13, roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. Now, Jesus didn't have his flesh torn by lions, but he had his flesh torn by the beating he received at the hands of the soldiers, Pilate's soldiers. Verse 14, he says, I am poured out like water and my bones are out of joint. Now, it never specifically says in the Bible that Jesus' bones were out of joint, but I've read that if you're crucif crucified, within minutes, your shoulders are dislocated and not long after that, your elbows and your wrists are dislocated as well. Probably would have been common knowledge at the time that that's what would have happened. Verse 15, the psalmist writes, my mouth is dried up. We read in John 19 that Jesus says from the cross, I am 